I, yeah. There is no file following Mallory yet. Be blessed. Have a good lunch. Thanks for coming. In all seriousness. And I, and I will just say, because I don't know if she, it, it's came out the way I heard it. We do do background checks on all our nursery volunteers. So just in case you're wondering, anybody take a baby? No. We do do background checks. Uh, I'm Pastor Scott. Welcome. I know there's several new people here and so grateful you're chosen to worship with us this morning. We are excited to get into Atonement Series momentarily, but you may have walked by a slip of paper as you walked in. Uh, we are a church that is almost 100% virtual, but for those who are liking that feel of paper in their hands, it's double-sided and there's two things to fill out and you can do both sides or you can do one or you can just throw your gum away in it. Place it in the offering pyramid after the service. One side is for our wise council nominations. Wise council is who guides and directs our church, who prays over our church. And we will be having theoretically two openings to fill uh, in this coming year. Uh, We do that in June and July. We have those new uh, officers installed. And then on the other side, this is kind of a fun one. It's the Y series. And you say, why? Well, because we know that there's times where a sermon may not actually answer the question you've always wrestled with. For example, why are there no dinosaurs in the Bible? Yeah, that's not going to be my week. That's Pastor Mike's, okay? But, but questions such as that, a big one that people always put in this series, question hopper, is why is there so much pain and suffering? Why can't Jesus take away some of it? Why can't this be a little bit less? Why is, you can go really, really, really theological or biblical. It's really an opportunity to stump the pastor, Okay, stump the pastor. So take that as a challenge. If it's hard, Pastor Mike will be preaching on it. If it's easy, I'll be on that week. And we'll be going into that series post-Easter. So we're looking for those sermon series topics. Now with that in mind, let's get back into the atonement series as we find our way barreling towards Easter, April 17th. We're looking at four different versions of what Jesus does on the cross for me, for me. Two weeks ago, Pastor Mike talked about how Jesus is the victor over death, over evil itself by on that cross. Last week, Sam not only came and preached on the idea that Christ is the example we need to follow. This week, we're going to look a little bit different, but they're all interrelated, more or less, and with a little bit different vein of looking at Jesus's atonement work. Today, we're looking at the substitution of Jesus as the only offering that is worth the place and the price of our sin. That Jesus' crucifixion, while it's all the things that Mike and Sam said, it also has to be that substitution for an offering that is my sin and all the sins of all humanity. That's a lot of sin if you had to weigh it on a scale. This will connect to next week, but you'll have to come back next week for that. But before getting into the sin problem and where sin comes in the first place, let's have a little bit of fun. There's an all right, I liked it. All right, we got a little fun. We're going to definitely absolutely, and completely rate the greatest prequels of all time, okay? It's based on applause, okay? So we have to feel like, you know, you're in uh, Dope Campbell Stadium right now, or whatever stadium you like. Half the stadiums in the world are named Memorial. So you're in Memorial Stadium, and just roar if you like the prequel that will be shown on the screen. So we're starting with number one. Are you ready? That was so unenthusiastic. (laughs) We are four weeks removed from daylight savings time. Are you ready? That's what I'm looking for. First prequel, Star Wars, all three of them. Seriously, Yoda has a lightsaber, friends, okay? 
All right, let's try this one. This one's one you may not know, you might not think about. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. How many of you are plotting just for Harrison Ford right now? There it is, okay. I think I heard an amen from somewhere. All right, here's three. Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Even worse than Star Wars. Even worse than Star Wars. All right, a little more modern. X-Men First Class. <laughs> Can you make that sound one more time? That was perfect. Okay, okay. <laughs> it was like a... Yeah, like slow motion, like everything went in slow motion just for one moment and like four people clapped. Okay, that one's the winner. No, um, The Hobbit. That was a normal, yeah, right there. That was a good, right speed, okay? Uh, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I can tell the age generation of the claps, Okay. Some of you are like, huh? Who's that guy? <laughs> Lastly, Monsters University. Oh, isn't that cute? Isn't that cute? All right. Here's, we have to have a runoff, okay? We have to have a runoff. It's either between Indiana Jones, prepare yourself, or The Hobbit, okay? All those for Indiana Jones now. All those for The Hobbit now. Of course, he does this. Harrison Ford wins. Congratulations, those who voted for Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Well done. The greatest prequels of all time. The greatest prequels of all time. But today, I want to give you another prequel, a totally different spin on the idea of prequel, because prequels happen only in, when you have the first movie. And really, the only reason that some prequels happen is because Hollywood had a pretty good storyline for the main movie, and so they have to write something that kind of just convolates it so you have a, a background of a character, right? The, the idea of prequels is a really new and a very interesting idea, and yet Scripture has what we see as a perfect prequel. We're jumping back to the prophet Isaiah, which is around 700 B.C., and Isaiah is one of those major prophets. He has a huge chunk of the Old Testament. And he writes, and I'm going to read it to you. We're not going to put it up on the screens. And I just want you to rest in the words. And so accept any sort of worship posture you'd like. Close your eyes. We'll wake you up at the end. Close your eyes. Just marinate in a prayer posture you want. It's very long. But I want you to listen to this prequel and hear the person of Jesus Christ. This is 700 years before Jesus comes on the planet. And I want you to hear how Isaiah describes this suffering servant and what this suffering servant does so beautifully in Isaiah 53. Hear the word of the Lord. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were so many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, for kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a dry root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor there was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Mm. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Normally I would spend an entire sermon and actually probably a sermon series just on this passage alone. It's so laden with theological beauty. There's so many interesting patterns, cultural nuances. For example, the Hebrew in the passage is beautifully symmetrical. There's five paragraphs of three verses each. It begins and ends with the servant exaltations. And one to five is about him. Two to four is about rejection. And in stanza three, we see that the pronouns for God and man are one in the ancient language. It's interesting that even the passage states that this person, this suffering servant, would be so marred, it wouldn't even look like a human being. There's so many to get into. But today, instead of taking the microscope and zooming in on this passage, what I want to bring to the, the table this morning is a telescope to look at all of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, and see how does this passage fit in to the entirety of the Bible. So with that in mind, let's start at the beginning beginning of time itself. We see that there's this place, we call it a garden of Eden. You know, familiar with the story, yes. And in this garden, we see Adam and Eve, and they are naked, and they have no shame. They have intimacy with God that is unbelievable. And God is with them, and walks among them, and talks with them. God is in community with these people, and yet we see the fall and the curse of the fall right away that there is a division because of sin between God and humanity. And we see right away that the whole of the scripture 
is to try to reverse the curse. We've got to reverse the curse. That there's this curse from sin, that the initial sin and every one of my sins, which is just going against the holy realm and going against the holy order, is to try to reverse this curse. And so there's all these books of the Bible that are a pathway and a gateway to understand that the purpose of Scripture is to provide a rescue plan. A rescue plan that some of us didn't even know we needed. But this rescue plan is meant to put you back into that right relationship in the garden. But the sin that breaks us means we need to find a redemption, a balm for our sin. And so God begins that. And he picks this old guy, an old lady, Abram and Sarai. He changes their name and he makes a covenant with Abraham called the Abrahamic Covenant, which is about 2000 BC, about 4,000 years ago. And he says, there'll be as many descendants there are stars in the sky and grains of sand on the beach. We're in Florida, it's beach, okay? <laughs> Most of the time when I give you a question about the Bible, the answer is Jesus, but this one was beach, okay? As grains of sand on the, there it is, okay. Good, good, good. And he makes this covenant saying, out of you, there'll be a blessing. There'll be one who redeems all of humanity. And Abraham has a son. He takes Isaac up on the mountain and he's going to give up his own son because God asked him to, which is so warped and weird. But man, does it foreshadow what God's going to do himself. And so Abraham's up on that hill and he knows that the entirety of the promise is based in his son Isaac. And luckily God stops him. From Isaac, we have Jacob, who becomes renamed Israel. And this covenant is passed down to person, to person, to person. And it starts out with one family, this Abrahamic family, the ancestors of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has all sorts of boys. They all move to Egypt. Long story, real cool story. Read it, please. They all go to Egypt. And in Egypt, they forget about kind of who they are and their core. And this guy named Pharaoh enslaves them all. And they cry out to God over generations upon generations upon generations. And you think so much that God's forgotten his people. And yet this one guy who's one of the most unique and interesting persons and a huge sinner, by the way, named Moses, rises out and leads his people out of this promised land. And God makes a covenant, not just with Moses, but all the people called the Mosaic Covenant. We call it the Ten Commandments. But these 10 commandments aren't meant to be rules that we just follow like robots. No, this is a promise between God and God's people. Saying, if you do these 10 things, I'll be your God. How long does it take for the people to fail those 10 commandments? Like two seconds. Hey, everybody, give me your gold jewelry. Let's make a cow. Let's worship this cow. And this is God now. And so we go from intimacy to choosing a family, to choosing a nation and a, tr a tribe. Excuse me, not a nation yet. They're almost a nation. To a tribe. And this tribe instantly fails. And so they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? God refines these people. And he tells them law after law after law after law after law. Genesis books like Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All these formulate and give this identity to those people. And they get to this place called the promised land, which is strategically located in the world where every single person who needs to get from Africa to Russia has to go through there. Everyone who wants to get from Saudi Arabia to England has to go through there. And God says, hey, be my people. Tell everybody about me. Show them who I am. 
they don't do very good. But one person named David, who has a heart for God's own heart, who wants to do God's will so greatly, comes and he says, I'll make you king. And I'll promise that as long as you are king, there'll be a descendant of yours on the throne forever. Called the Davidic covenant around 1000 BC. And we see that God promises this nation of Israel that I'll make one who we talked about way back here with Abraham, who talked about a little bit with Moses. There's a lot actually about Moses that he tells about Jesus and prophesies about him all the way to David saying, hey, there's going to be a person who's gonna bring all of these covenants into fruition. Now this nation is great for roughly five seconds. David isn't all that he's crapped up to be. Solomon's a little bit worse. And then the nation splits over a civil war. They get thrown into captivity. And the whole of the Israelite history is shown that over and over they're put into captivity and then released. Captivity and released. And these prophets, including Isaiah, come out and they keep preaching. This is how we need to live. This is what we need to be. And over and over and over, for a thousand years, these prophets speak. And then there's this period of absolute silence until an unknown carpenter and a young woman that aren't, they're not even married bring forth the one who re- reveals and beautifully fulfills each and every one of these covenants. We see that throughout history, it is the person of Jesus Christ who will come in and fulfill not only every single one of these covenants, but will bring us back into perfect relationship with our divine God. Jesus is the one who leads us back to the garden. And once we're there, he promises to never let us go again because he loves us so much. At this time, you start seeing the just giant historical way in which all of human history revolves around Jesus Christ. All the prophets begin prophesying with a prequel type genre of who Jesus would be and what he would try to do. They preached after David for 500 years and they knew that God needed a savior. And so they looked for a triumphant king, a soldier, a bold savior. All these people were were confused on who Jesus would be. Isaiah says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He is crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In Jesus' day, they would do animal sacrifices to atone for sin. Doves, sheep, oxen, all sorts of animals would be offered up to atone for sin because it was the idea that blood somehow made me clean. Today, we look back and think how ridiculous this kind of economy is of salvation. No animal could atone for my sins. But I wonder the way that Abraham, Isaac, Moses, David would be astounded at the way in which we ease our conscience by foolishly wasting, buying, and discarding pleasure to appease my sin. That we give out of obligation and not out of worship and allow so many to suffer so I can bask in my perverted economic luxury. Let us not judge them for their economy of salvation lest they judge us. Because just like they could never appease a God and a sin burden, we can't either by our own power. 
Today, we look and dismiss Jesus' sacrifice as awkward, ancient, or maybe just a little bit mysterious at how it works. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In seminary, we had a great discussion on how this passage makes sense without Jesus. And it's really confusing if it don't, take, don't put Jesus in the Isaiah passage. After a great amount of talking, which I don't recall all the details, we found some Hebrew ways in which you can make sense of this passage. It does make sense. But that's like looking at the road and only thinking that it could be used for a bicycle. And it wasn't actually made for a car. No, Isaiah 53 and 54 work because of the person, life, and death of Jesus Christ. Jesus not only takes my place in death, but he solves the sin equation and sets me right with God. Jesus' sacrifice solves the problem that Adam and Eve have and the problem that today I have. This passage is indeed the greatest prequel of all prequels. Not only does it illustrate Jesus' sacrifice, but gives us a theological understanding of what happens on that cross. The necessity of setting us right with God. How marvelous that is so simple and yet so hidden among the great historical moments in human history. God doesn't choose the highest king or the most powerful, but a humble carpenter's son in a very humble age of being a Jew. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You have an opportunity to be a part of the greatest story ever told. God doesn't want you to be a stranger in the story. Many of us feel, how do I fit into this Bible? Where does it supply my life? When you receive Jesus and salvation into your heart, just something reorients and all of humanity, and all my life, and all of the idea of eternity makes sense. It's a reorienting moment that some call a warming in the heart. Some call it an opening of the mind. But friends, it is understanding that it's only through Jesus that I can have everlasting life. Only through Jesus. And all of the New Testament looks back upon Jesus's work and testifies to that truth. Romans 3, 23 through 24, 25, excuse me. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by what church? He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on that cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. He quotes Isaiah, by his wounds you have been healed. 
There is in the New Testament no other passage from the Old Testament that's quoted more than the suffering servant passages. Over and over and over, they look and they see, oh, that's the prequel. If only we would have gotten it right. But friends, God made it right. God knew exactly where every person in that Bible had to be in the moment they had to be. And I believe that God knows you had to be here right now hearing this. Even the most famous of all verses attest to this fact. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. Do you believe in this? In this absurdity on one hand and the majestic gift on the other, that Jesus Christ has substituted himself on your behalf. And all you have to do is believe, acknowledge, and thank him and follow that truth. It isn't easy. You have to leave your ego, leave yourself at the door, and fully accept this gift of everlasting life. Dan Pelican is going to come up and lead us through a liturgy, and then we're going to close with a song which is just a beautiful closing song about how and where Christ comes in and sets the record straight. This isn't like some sort of court of law in modern America, no. This is a complete and amazing gift that Jesus and God himself come and set the record straight on my behalf. It's not that there's some sort of lawyer who comes in and says, hey, I wanna prove this person to be innocent. No, it's the judge who walks in and just says, case closed, without any sort of thought or any sort of trial. It's only because Jesus comes in and already takes care of the matter. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. And the amazing power and grace and truth that he gave his life for you is one that I want you to ponder as we continue to worship.